chapter 9. It's been about an eon since we've been in the Gospel of Mark, but if you've been with us on the times that we've had our regular midweek service, we've been going chapter by chapter or paragraph by paragraph through the Gospel of Mark. We'll continue to be doing that through the fall as long as it takes to get through Mark. Uh, And so we're starting in Mark chapter 9, but to get the sense of it, let's do a little bit of background. But let me start with this. Have you ever seen a preview? I remember when I was a little kid, and our main entertainment in town was the movie theater, so we'd go there, you know, on every Friday night, pay our 50 cents. It was a long time ago in cheap movies. Pay our 50 cents to get in. And they always had, the beginning before the show, they always had these fabulous previews for the upcoming show. And you're sitting there and you're watching the previews and you're thinking, oh, that show is going to be absolutely phenomenal. Oh, I got to see that. Didn't come back the week later or two weeks later and the show is an absolute dud. You ever see commercials or advertisements on TV? They're advertising something that's special that's coming up. And after about five minutes watching it, you say, this doesn't pay to watch it all. It's boring. Sometimes previews build up something that just never reaches the level of the preview. Well, in Mark chapter 9, Jesus is giving a preview. And he's going to be saying, okay, there's something that's coming in the future. Let me give you a preview of it. And the preview doesn't hold a candle to the reality. But the preview is is absolutely fascinating. It's the story that you are very familiar with if you've done any Bible study. It's when Jesus takes his disciples, goes on the mount, and Jesus is transfigured for a short period of time into his glory glory is kind of unveiled and revealed. And the disciples see, they get a glimpse of what Jesus is really like in all of his splendor and glory. But the occasion of Mark chapter 9, and we can study it, we can look at Mark 9 and talk about the transfiguration. We could grab the story and pull it out of its context and we would learn a lot. And it's a phenomenal story. But if we keep it in its context, I think it even gives us more information. Let's back up a little bit into Mark chapter 8 and let's follow what has happened just before this experience that Jesus takes the disciples out on the Mount of Transfiguration. The reason I say that is there are times when you are doing instruction, you are teaching, that you create a scenario. I I did this a few times with my boys. I wanted them to learn how to do some mechanical work. Not a whole lot, okay, but enough that they could be dangerous with their own vehicles. And so we'd create a situation like, okay, let's keep on running the car. The brakes are a little bit squeaky, but we'll run them a little bit more so that it works, that we could sit down and we could teach them and use the scenario to show them how to be able to change their own brakes or the oil or whatever it is. Jesus is letting a circumstance occur in the lives of the disciples so that he can use that to eventually do a teaching time. To get that teaching time back up in Mark 8, follow what happens. That what, ha- what is going on is Jesus has been ministering throughout the northern region outside of Galilee. He's coming back into Galilee. This is in the last months of his ministry. He's going to be heading down now, taking a long way, a long time of several weeks going through Galilee, then down into Judea, and he's headed towards Jerusalem on his final visit, final journey towards the city of Jerusalem, where he'll eventually die and then be buried, and then eventually resurrect. So he has just wrapped up ministering outside of Jewish territory in the regions that we've talked about in the last weeks, about how he was up in that region of Tyre and Sidon. Now he then into Decapolis, and now he's coming back into northern, Israel, uh, northern Galilee. As he's teaching... 
He's going along. There's crowds. There's people. There's all kinds of press. People are tweeting about him. They're saying things that's going out. And it says in verse 27 of chapter 8, Jesus went out, his disciples in the towns of Caesarea Philippi. They're still in part of that Transjordan area. And by the way, he asked along the way, he asked his disciples saying, whom do men say that I am? The disciples respond. They, some people are saying you're John the Baptist. Some say you're Elijah the prophet or one of the other prophets. Jesus says to them, but whom do you say that I am? And this is that, that phenomenal confession, the confession by Peter, where Peter, the spokesman of the twelve, he speaks up and says, you are the, what's your Bible read? You're the Christ. You're the Messiah. That Christ is the Greek word for Messiah. You are the Christ. And then he charges them that they should tell no man. This is the, the, the second to the last time he makes this command. Don't tell anybody what you know. Just hold it for now. And he goes on, and then, so you have the confession. You have the confession by Peter. This is really, really, really important. This is, Peter's getting it. The disciples are getting it. They've seen Jesus. They've walked with him. They're getting a, an idea of who he is. And then it goes on, it says in verse 31, he began, that's key word, he begins to start teaching them that the Son of Man must do what? Okay, suffer many things, be rejected of the elders and of the chief priests and the scribes, and then eventually be... Be killed, okay? And then he adds to it, after three days, okay, he's going to rise again. So Jesus teaches this. The disciples don't understand that because their understanding of Messiah is when Messiah comes, he's going to bring in the kingdom. He's going to bring in God's perfect law, perfect land. Everything is going to be great. You're the Messiah. We believe you're the, you're the predicted one. And all of a sudden, the predicted one is telling you, I'm going to die. And so then you have now the confusion of the disciples. Their confusion, Peter's response is what? Peter, he spoke that saying openly, and Peter took him and began to, what's your Bible read? He began to rebuke Jesus, okay? Basically, you know, Jesus, you're wrong. You know, and so, but when he had turned about and looked on the disciples, Jesus rebukes Peter, and this is that famous saying, get thee behind me, Satan, okay? Because you savor not, or you, you aren't hungry for the things of God you don't understand. So there's clear confusion by the disciples. Peter doesn't get it. Peter is all you know, beside himself. And so Jesus had, you know, has told them something they didn't want to hear. And as soon as he did something they didn't like, they didn't want to hear, they got confused. Boy, oh boy, that never happens to any of us, does it? When the Lord puts us in situations, he gives us a squeaky knee. Okay? And we don't want another squeaky knee. Is there, Danielle, I'm going to pick on you for a moment. Is there a possibility to get confusing like, Lord, what are you doing? Sure. Sure, right? Okay. And so that happens. Then watch what happens next. Then when Jesus called the people unto him with his disciples, right in that whole same setting, whosoever will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Now watch what Jesus says about real discipleship. He asks for real commitment. And he is asking them as disciples, when he says to them, take up your cross, what is he implying about discipleship? Easy or hard? Popular, not popular. Okay, so he's laying it out that it's going to be difficult to follow me. And then he adds to it, for whosoever will save his own life is going to lose it. Whosoever shall lose his life for my sake in the gospel, oh, he's going to save it. 
So there's benefit in sacrifice is what he's getting at. For what shall a profit a man if he gains the whole world and yet loses his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? Whosoever therefore shall be ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous sinful generation, of him also shall the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father and with his holy angels. So he's saying then, if you're serious, you're following me, all you crowds, here you are, you're listening to me, you want the miracles, you want but I'm telling you, if you're really sincere, about following me, it's going to cost you something. You have to be willing to walk an unpopular path. You need to be willing to have some rejection. You need to be willing to understand that Christianity is not a bed of roses. There's challenges because the world hates Christ. The world hates the Christian. And so Jesus has laid this out, this this call for a great commitment. That's the negative part. The negative of you need to be really, I shouldn't say it's negative, but he gives the aspect of real commitment is going to be costly. Then he turns around, and remember there's no break here, but all of a sudden Jesus is speaking in that same conversation. It says, and he said unto them, amen, we heard about it on Sunday, amen means this is absolute truth. Verily I say unto you that there shall be some, so he's given the negative aspect of following, not following him, you're going to be rejected. But the positive, if you follow me, there will be some here that stand here which shall not taste of death till they have seen the kingdom of God come with power. That's part of that same conversation. Because then verse 2 says, and after six days. So verse 1 goes with the previous comments. And so now you have Jesus talking about the communion of those who are really dedicated to him. That they're going to have this communion of, they're going to be able to, to stand in the kingdom. They're going to be able to see the, the, the power of the kingdom be displayed before they even die. And so the disciples have some confusion. They have some difficulties going. And it's based on that setting that Jesus then takes James, Peter, and John, six days later, says, come with me and let's go to the top of the mountain. So keep in mind the context of the transfiguration. What happens on that mountain is happening because of previous conversations. And so they go up on the mountain. What occurs is Jesus takes Peter, James, and John. You know the story well. They go up on the mountain. I don't know for sure, and nobody does exactly what mountain it is. If, if, you're, you, know, if you really need to study that in depth to find out exactly which one, um, there's different options that are given uh, by Bible scholars. So they go up on the mountain, and there they are down on top of the Mount of Transfiguration. According to the Gospel of Luke, They went there for a purpose. Anybody remember the purpose that Luke says? It doesn't say here in Mark. But they went on top of the mountain. Jesus had a plan. Anybody remember what it was? It's very similar to the Garden of Gethsemane. To pray. It says that they went up on the mountain to pray. And Luke gives the moral information that when they're on the mountain praying, that Jesus continues in prayer and the disciples do the same thing they did in the Garden of Gethsemane later on. They fall asleep. The disciples fall asleep. So there, you have this setting that's unfolding that's while they're up there for whatever extended period of time, Jesus still is praying. Peter, James, and John had prayed. They fell asleep. And all of a sudden, Jesus is transformed. We read in verse, um, the end of verse 2, that he, Jesus, was transfigured. The word literally in the original is metamorphosized. That means change. You all know what that word means, change from the inside out. That all of a sudden there's this, tra- this 
this transfiguration, this change, and it says it happened before them in their presence, okay? And according to the other Gospels, as he is transforming and transfiguring, all of a sudden he's showing his glory, they wake up and they see this happening. And so it goes on, it describes in this text that his raiment became shining exceedingly white. Now, when we go to Matthew, Matthew adds and says that his face did shine as, what would be the most shining object you can think of? The sun. So Matthew says his face is as brilliant as the sun. This passage says that even his garments are transfigured, that they're affected and they're glowing and they're brilliant. It says in Luke that, that all of a sudden his garments are as white as possibly white. Well, it says it here in this text that the raiment became shining exceedingly white as snow. It, nothing on earth compares to how white and brilliant it became here in Mark chapter 9, verse 3. In, in Luke, it says that his raiment becomes white and glistens. So there's, you know, um, there's that, there, there's just this glowing appearance of Jesus Christ. The account goes on and tells us it's not just Jesus, but all of a sudden, who else appears next to Jesus? Okay, Moses and Elijah. So you got two, two, two of the, some of the greats of the Old Testament. So Jesus there, Moses and Elijah appear. The disciples around this time, they're waking up. And all the texts give the impression that the disciples' first response is, Yay, this is so cool. Yes or no? Does it say it, Mark? Does it give you any kind of a sense of what their feelings were? They're afraid. They're afraid. Uh, a good afraid, bad afraid, they're terrorized. We read later on that in one, of the, in one of the passages that they fell down on their face terrified when the voice of God speaks out. So this is a very moving experience. And by the way, we would understand. If all of a sudden you were visited, and it happened in the Bible times, when people were visited by angels, what was the typical response? They fall down. They absolutely, even Daniel, remember Daniel, we'll read about it in our Sunday school uh, when we get to it. When Daniel sees the angel, he loses his ability to stay standing. So the disciples are already laying down because they're falling asleep. So that's a benefit. They didn't fall far. And uh, they see him. They're terrified. And the passage is interesting because as this is unfolding, all of a sudden, it says they appeared and the men, verse 4, they're talking with Jesus, that is Elijah and Moses. And Peter answered Nobody asked him a question, but Peter thinks he has to answer. You know how people are like that? You know anybody who has to give their opinion when they weren't asked? Yes, no? Okay, that's Peter. Peter answers, and he says, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles. Now, go down to verse 6. Why is Peter speaking up? Well, it gives us a little bit of a thing. He didn't know what to say. Yeah, you ever run into people who don't know what to say, so they just kind of, what'd you say? They blab, I was going to say blurt. Yeah, that's your blab. They just blab something. Peter is blabbing this out. He's blurting it out. That it's the first thing that comes to his mind, okay, which is always dangerous to speak. So he just kind of just says, oh, let's build three tabernacles. You know, that whole idea of the Old Testament, we build these places where we can just sit and refresh and just enjoy ourselves during the tabernacle season and just kind of enjoy the mountaintop. Let's just build one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah, and we're just going to sit here and we're going to enjoy each other's company ad infinitum because he didn't know what to say. And then it adds as well, part of the reason he didn't know what to say is because, do you see it? Okay. Because he's afraid. They're afraid. Okay. Does fear make some people talk? 
Okay, that just start you know, going, okay, that's Peter. Okay, and so we get a little bit. And it doesn't stop there. It goes on, it says, there was a cloud that overshadowed them. As I've compared the different Gospels, one of them gives the impression that it overshadowed Jesus and the two, uh, the two others that appeared, Moses and Elijah. One of the, some of the Gospels, one of the Gospels gives the impression that everybody was somehow caught up in this cloud. The exact situation is the cloud that overshadowed them and a voice. Almost like, by the way, where do you see a cloud anywhere else in the Old Testament that it just kind of is a phenomenal cloud? Do you know what it's called? Shekinah glory. Okay, that cloud that all of a sudden, like when God he made his, his presence visible in the tabernacle, then when Solomon built the temple, and it was this physical display of God. So the men are up there, and all of a sudden there's this similarity of the Shekinah glory that all of a sudden comes upon them, and it surrounds them, and a voice speaks. So can you imagine you're surrounded? Um, I, I don't mean to be irreverent, but you're in this huge fog, and there's this brilliant light shining. You know it's Jesus right there, like the sunshine. And all of a sudden you're surrounded, not by surround sound system, but by the voice of God. And the voice of God speaks and says, This is my beloved son, hear him. And suddenly when they looked around, they saw nobody else but this one, Jesus. He seated me by himself. And that's where we read in one of the other Gospels, they fell down terrified. You know, now they're curling up in a fetal position because this is just so overwhelming. And so the cloud speaks, and there's my beloved son, listen to him. And all of a sudden the cloud dissipates. And when it dissipates, so has the two prophets. And Jesus is left there, but Jesus has returned to his normal appearance that they're used to. And then the account, they, and, and, and all of this just ties together. I, I appreciate your patience just listening as we just go through it. As they start down the mountain, now Jesus says, okay, let's head down. And so as they come down the mountain, he tells them again, okay, second time in this whole paragraph situation, he tells them to tell no man things that they had seen. By the way, let me throw this out. This is the last time in the Gospels he tells the disciples, don't say anything. But this time he adds something to it. Don't say anything until... And he gives them a time when they should talk about it. That's the only time this has happened in the Gospels. Other times it says, don't share. But now he gives them that information. You just hang on to it. So it's something they're supposed to remember. They're supposed to catalog. Because they need it for later on. I think that's critical. Which tells us something. Jesus did this, not just for a momentary pizzazz. He did this so they would remember something. Remember the story. Remember the account. Share it with others. There's information here. There's lessons here that you're going to need later on, and others will need. We'll come back to that. Okay, and so uh, then they are coming down. He charged them not to tell until the Son of Man were risen again. And they kept that saying with themselves, questioning and wondering, what does he mean about rising from the dead? What does he mean about rising from the dead? What does he mean? Now, you and I have the benefit we have 2020 hindsight. We know exactly what he means, correct? That he would rise again on what morning that we celebrate? Easter Resurrection Sunday. They don't have a clue. They don't understand it because they still are struggling. Remember back in chapter 8? What did they struggle with? What did Peter speak against? Jesus going to Jerusalem, suffering, 
dying, you know, his life being taken. So they're, they're hung up on Jesus being beaten and suffering, much less rising from the dead. What do they mean? The Messiah's dying. It doesn't make sense. You know, so they're, they're confused. So they come off this mountain. We don't get it. We don't get it. And they asked him this theological question saying, wait a minute. We just saw Elijah up on the mountain. Didn't the Old Testament prophets predict like Malachi? Didn't they predict that before the Messiah comes, Elijah has to show up? By the way, was that predicted? You're supposed to say, yes. Yes, that was predicted. Okay. And so, remember where they're at right now. He has, he is the Messiah. He's to bring the kingdom. They've just seen who with him? Moses and Elijah. Does this fit the prediction that you're going to bring in the kingdom? You know, in their mind, this is what they're, they're going through. But Jesus has been saying, no, um, I'm going to die. I'm going to die and I'm going to resurrect. And they can't get over that idea you're going to resurrect. They go right back to, well, Elijah just showed up. Therefore, the kingdom should be here. And so they're struggling. And Jesus makes a comment. This, the, the next phrase is very, very important. He says, okay. He answers and he tells them, Elijah truly does need to come first and restore all things. And it is written of the Son of Man that he... Okay. Is it true that Elijah is supposed to come before the Messiah shows up? Yes, it was predicted. Jesus isn't going to debate that. In fact, he even mentions that in verse 13, where he says, yes, and by the way, the Elijah has come. You and I, hindsight, who's the Elijah he's referring to? John the Baptist. Okay. But he has just said, yes, it is true that Elijah is supposed to show up. But in those same prophecies, what else is predicted? You're all excited about prophecies predicting kingdom coming. What else has been predicted? That the, that the Messiah must suffer. Remember, folks, let, let's keep this. You know, they're only picking out select passages of Scripture that really appeal to them. Isn't it good we never do that today? That nobody ever does that, Right? Okay, so he is, you know, we like the verses that talk about all the blessings. We don't like the verses that talk about the difficulties. And Jesus is trying to say, now wait a minute, this whole thing, as true as Elijah is predicted to come, it is as true that the Messiah must suffer. Let's go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3, the very beginning of the predictions that they're suffering. Remember that you're going to bear a son. And the serpent will bruise his heel, but he will do what to the serpent's head? He's going to crush it. But immediately, all the way back in the Garden of Eden, it's been predicted. There's going to be that special one, that Son of God will come. He will suffer. Psalm chapter 22. He's going to be between the thieves. He's going to be one who's going to be beaten. Psalm 110. We have Isaiah 52 through 53 which is the passages about the suffering servant. How that servant is going to have his... Do you remember some of the things stated? His beard will be plucked out. He will be beaten so bad that what happens? You can't even recognize who he is or if he's human. It's going to be so terrible for him. 
And so he's reminding them, prophecy, prophecy, prophecy. You can't just pick one and say, Elijah, and he showed up here. And you've got to remember. And so what I told you just days, a week before, you struggled when I told you that I'm going to go to Jerusalem to be beaten, to suffer, to die, and resurrect. And you're still struggling with that. You can't get over it. What's he mean, rising from the dead? That, that, that's, that means he dies? That can't be. He's, he's this glorious one. All of this is happening within that context that they walk down. Okay? And so, it's, so it's so critical that we put it all together, and then we come to this. Okay, why did this event happen? What was the benefit of this event? Can we just suggest several good benefits that come from it right away within the context? Let's just throw this out. the, The obvious benefit is it reveals what about Jesus? What does it reveal about Jesus? He's God. He's God in the flesh. That, that's so important. Let's do a second one. This confirms Peter's confession that Jesus claimed uh, that Jesus was who he claimed to be. Remember the Son of Man with all of his glory going to come. I, I want to throw this out to you just as, a, just as a, your personal study. That phrase Son of Man comes from an Old Testament book. And it's used very uniquely in the Old Testament to talk about the one who brings in the kingdom, the one who is appointed to be the ruler of the kingdom of God. Does anybody remember what book in the Old Testament prophecy uses son of man? There's two of them, actually. Do you remember? It's one that we're studying in Sunday school. It begins with D and ends in L. Yeah, that's it. Very good. Good guess. Okay. Daniel uses it. It's interesting in the Gospel of Mark, just for your own benefit and study, that in the first seven chapters of the Gospel of Mark, he only uses the term twice. But in chapters 8, 9, for the rest of it, he uses it multiple times. We've read it three times already here this evening. That all of a sudden, this prophetic title of the one who's coming starts showing up more and more. And so Peter's confession of who, this, who Christ is, this is a confirmation from God Almighty that, Peter, you were right when you saw what you said before. By the way, uh, a third reason why this happens, in, char- in chapter 9, verse 1, what did Jesus promise? He said that some of you standing here will not die until you see basically the kingdom's power. Literally. Okay? So, th- so the transfiguration w- did what? It fulfilled that prediction of chapter 9, verse 1. Because James, Peter, and John, they did see the power of the kingdom when they see Jesus transfigured. They see the essence of the kingdom in all of its might. So it's part of that fulfillment of a promise. Number four, it confirms that God the Father is pleased with and approving of Jesus and everything he does. This is so important for the disciples to hear this. And remember this later on, that Jesus received full approval of God Almighty. Let me ask this question. Which one of us in this room has received full 100% approval from God of everything that we have done? Which one of us? None of us, because there is none righteous, no, not one. For all have sin and come short of the, the standard of God, the glory of God. This is a confirmation that Jesus is sinless. That Jesus, everything he did was fully approved by the Father. The disciples need to remember this. This is going to be important to keep in mind later on. The, to encourage the disciples, number five, to encourage them when they see, what event 
happens within months after this that they are going to be really put, put through the, the rollers and just ground down. It's going to be the passion of Christ. When they see Jesus suffering, when they see him being beaten, when they see him on the cross, they're going to be so confused. They're going to wonder, is he really the one? They need to remember what happened on the Mount of Transfiguration. Let's add to that this thought. This gets even more, more important. They need to remember, and here's what's demonstrated. It's demonstrated with Jesus being transfigured that Jesus was fulfilling all the, the law and the prophets. How is that pictured? Moses is the one who basically delivered the law and who is considered oftentimes, even like in Malachi, where he gives the prediction about Elijah, that it's the law and the prophets. He talks about Moses and Elijah, that they are supporting the, this coming of Jesus Christ or of the predicted one at that moment. So my point is this, that this transfiguration is to remind the disciples this is predicted. Jesus is saying there is no mistake. When Jesus suffers and dies, it's not an accident. It's not a plan that's gone awry. It's not, it's not something that is, you know, all of a sudden caught God off guard. God knew about this. Okay, God talks about it. The reason I say that is in Luke chapter 9, the, the parallel passage. You've got to flip there to Luke chapter 9 to just catch one phrase. When they are on the Mount of Transfiguration... Okay, it talks about in Luke chapter 9. Would you flip there and just, you need to highlight this one spot. It talks about the discussion that they're having while they're up there in verse 31. When Moses and Elijah are talking with Jesus, the conversation that the disciples heard, verse 31, what are they talking about? They spoke of Jesus' decease. Literally is his exodus. His exodus, his departure. They talk about Jesus' purchase of the freedom. And so there's going to be that conversation that takes place that this is no accident. Let me go on. Messiah crucified, it's planned, it's predicted, even as the messenger Elijah. Number eight, they give, this is given to fortify the disciples to obey the radical call of his discipleship. Because he said, come, be willing to give up everything to suffer for me. And he, they need to remember this, that Jesus is great. He is God. He is glorious. Just strengthen Christ as he prepared for his march to Jerusalem. And the, because even the prophets, there they are. They're there beside him. They're talking about his, his death, burial, resurrection. To encourage the disciples and us to continue to follow after Christ no matter what. Because what does the Father say when he, ta- when he speaks in the cloud? This is my beloved Son, Hear him. Okay, let's, let's bring this all together. So what practical lessons stand out for the disciples and for us? Obviously, the most clearly displayed thing is the greatness of Jesus Christ. The greatness of Christ in his glory, in his majesty, in his, his unveiled situation. That he is the greatest and he is God himself in the flesh. The disciples need to remember that in the days to come. He is great. You and I need to remember he is great, especially when great things don't happen to us, especially when difficulties come. He is great and glorious no matter what. 
even when difficult things arise. Number two, we need to remember the goodness of Christ. It never changes. He possesses goodness all the time. God the Father makes that comment that he is absolutely good. You want to see just kindness and goodness in Christ? The disciples have fallen asleep when he's told them to pray. Follow through the passage, read all three, that Jesus, after this glory, after they get it wrong, and Peter just shoots off his mouth once again, it says that they are terrified. Jesus touches them and says, Arise, let's go. Another act of kindness by Christ. Patience of Christ. The goodness of Christ seen in the fact that the Father speaks to him and says, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. The goodness of Christ. The goodness of Christ seen in the fact that here he is talking with these two greats of the Old Testament and they're talking about his upcoming death and suffering and departure, his exodus, and he's not wavering. He is going to commit himself to die for us. The goodness. And then you have the guidance of Christ that never changes. The guidance is very clearly in what the Father says when he says, Hear him constantly. Listen to the words of Christ continuously. Listen to the words of Christ. All of us, you all hear the words of Christ. In the original, it has the idea when you, that literally says, hear under, obeying the words of Christ. The disciples need this. The disciples are going to face some real difficult times in the day ahead. They need to remember that he is great. He is good. And he is their guide. They need to listen to him no matter what is going to happen. Do what he says. Keep on going by his rules. You know, there's, there's commercials. We start off talking about previews. There's a, in TV, you'll see some of these ads about psychic revelations. You can call in and pay your whatever it is and get your psychic revelation. 42% of Americans believe that this is real. And they're ready to pay big bucks to find out what's the future hold. Folk, we know what the future holds, and it's free. It's given to us in the Word of God. The direction, the guidance about making decisions. We have the free Bible with us. We have the real revelation. We have what is most supernatural, surrounded the words of Jesus Christ that are grand, that are glorious. And yet, how many read the Word? How many daily run to the Word of God for guidance. We run everywhere else, but what about the Word of God? Hear Him. That's what the Father says. Hear Him. Listen to Him. Let's take moments now to do one of the things that Christ said, that is to pray. To pray one for another.